Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from, some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy, so we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. The year is 1908, and in America, the last few decades have revealed some pretty big and exciting changes in the new world. To help fuel the United States' insatiable appetite for labor, to power the never-ending turbines, motors, and machines of its industrial revolution, America has opened its doors to over 20 million people from Europe. The promise? With grit, gumption, and God-given ability, you can free yourself from the shackles of old-world hang-ups and become a millionaire. Andrew Carnegie, a plucky workhorse from the slums of Scotland, did it here. Why can't you? You see, in America, it doesn't matter where you come from. All that matters is what you bring to the table. Unfortunately for Belgunis, a 50-year-old woman who emigrated from Norway just a few years ago, her table, along with the rest of her house, is on fire. Voracious flames devour an idyllic Indiana farmhouse as frantic neighbors scream about missing children and their poor mother, Belle a widow who never seemed to get a leg up in life. Rudimentary fire trucks, which look more like horse-drawn carriages, do their best to pump water onto the fire, but end up just filling the air with steam. The air grows thick with heat, smoke, and searing grief over innocent lives lost. The house burns to the ground, and the search for survivors begins. Later, as inspectors search through the wreckage, they make a tragic discovery the charred remains of Belle and her three children. Belle came to the U.S. decades earlier in search of a better life. She wanted comfort, freedom, and opportunity, just like everyone else. But today, in 1908, she finds herself surrounded by pain, misfortune, and a horrific end to an ambitious life. At least, that's what the late Belle was hoping people would say. However... As inspectors root through the remains of her home, they find the mangled bodies of at least 11 more people. Was Belle entertaining house guests when the unfortunate fire raced through her home and claimed all of its victims? Maybe she was hosting a party. These are very real thoughts being considered by the inspectors. Until they actually discover the condition of the bodies. They're chopped into pieces. A hush overtakes the singed property as realization sinks in. The rumors were true about the eccentric Norwegian immigrant. The late Belgunis had been a serial killer, and she had over a dozen victims, including her own children. But the surprises don't stop there. As investigators sort through the remains, they can't find the head to Bell's body. Anxious to close the case and end this Midwestern nightmare, the sheriff's office calls the coroner 
to confirm her identity, to get an easy certification that the killer is dead. But instead, the coroner notices that the body is five inches shorter and 50 pounds lighter than Belle. So it's not her. It can't be her. The sheriff's office reels from the discovery. They just had a serial killer living in their community for years, right under their nose. They can't bear the thought of further embarrassment, let alone a public panic. So the sheriff insists that Belle is dead. Yes, her quiet, invisible reign of terror is over. Or at least, they sure hope. But a bigger, more haunting question remains than Belle's whereabouts. And it vexes investigators, neighbors, and even today's criminal historians. Why? Why leave your homeland and come to the United States only to terrorize it? Why come to America to chase a dream just to destroy that dream and every single loved one who could have been a part of it? Well, just like Bell Gunness's personality, the answer, it's complicated. But there's one thing we know for certain. Bell Gunness has blood on her hands. History consists of heroes and villains and I suppose everything in between. But it's usually the villains who are the most interesting. Their flaws, their quirks, the voids in their hearts that force them to do the unthinkable. These are the characters that fascinate us. pull us in. That compel us to watch and don't let us look away. These are the characters that we're all about. You've heard of Al Capone, but what about George Remus, whose bootlegging empire made Capone's operation look like a lemonade stand? Sure, you know Billy the Kid. But while he was robbing cattle with a pistol, James McClintock was blowing up men by the dozen with his newfangled war machines. Never heard of them? Just wait. You'll see. And it's all true. Each episode, we want you to join them on their treacherous journeys to not only learn about what makes them tick, but more importantly, feel the times that created them. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from Cast Media, this is Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join with us every episode as we explore dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Belle Gunness is born Brynhild Paul's daughter Storset in a rural Norwegian municipality called Selbu in 1859. The late 1800s, of course, are a time of incredible and rapid change. The Industrial Revolution brought gaslighting and steam-powered machines to European cities. New industries in textiles and coal created new middle classes who clawed their way out of poverty. Steam-powered ships recently began lugging hopeful immigrants across the ocean to America, which promised good jobs and swaths of farmland. Yes, the late 1800s are a time of spectacular change and progress. For some. For others, this global revolution hasn't quite arrived. That's the case for Brynhild in her little Norwegian farm town. So instead of reading by the light of new gas lamps or zipping across the countryside to enjoy a holiday, Brynhild languishes in a crowded house with her seven siblings and no electricity. Then, at age 14, Brynhild finally sees her chance. Lucky for her, the spike in globalization that follows the Industrial Revolution has pulled many of the Norwegian countryside's youngsters away from their farms. As they run off to work in shipping, timber, and other lucrative fields, somebody has to look after the cows and get paid for it. And Brynhild is just the ambitious young woman for the job. She quickly builds a roster of nearby farms that will pay her to take care of their cows. Over the next several years, Brynhild hustles and scrapes together as much money as she can. 
Stories of regular folk striking it big in new business and technologies have become quite widespread by the late 1800s. And Brynhild is determined to become one of those success stories. The only question is how? Perhaps not shockingly, the answer comes from one of Brynhild's seven siblings. Her older sister leaves Norway for the U.S. and settles in Chicago, as do a lot of Northern Europeans at the time. Brynhild sees her chance, so she packs her bags, buys a one-way ticket, and leaves for the land of opportunity. It's not just a fresh start and a new opportunity either. It's what winners do. The way Brynhild sees it, winners are those that take risks, the ones with enough courage to swallow their fears of the unknown and throw themselves into the commerce center of the world. It's a big deal. And Brynhild is dead serious about her transformation. In America, she needs to rebrand herself with a name that exudes class, sophistication. As she approaches the shores of the new world, the idea hits her like a ton of bricks. The farmer's daughter is now to be known as Belle. But try as Belle does, her humble beginnings keep her in a death grip. She quickly learns that Chicago is expensive, so she has to stay with her sister and brother-in-law. In a moment of poetic resonance, the future serial killer uses her knowledge of cows to get a job where she can readily release the frustrations that America seems to dish her without fail and goes to work at a butcher shop, slicing and dicing carcasses. Belle is no stranger to hard work, so she pays her dues. She hacks apart cattle and sweeps floors and does whatever else she needs to do to make ends meet, all the while waiting for her next opportunity to come. But it doesn't, and that stings. It still stings over a decade later. The year is 1884, and a 25-year-old Belle stands before the turn of the century. Only now, she's the mother of four hungry, crying mouths and co-owner of a failing candy shop with her husband, Mads Sorensen. She looks in the mirror, and she doesn't see a shining beacon of social and economic mobility like she planned. She sees a struggling woman shoved into a house with screaming children and no money. Over 10 years in America, and Belle faces a painful, cloying truth. She still hasn't found a golden opportunity in America. She's in no better position than back when she first began as Brynhild. Instead, she finds herself in a different country, with a different name, and in the same desperate position. She's failing to live her dream just a little bit more every day. And the combination of disappointment and resentment feels absolutely suffocating. But Belle remembers that she didn't come all this way to fail. She came to build a new life and a new person. So she decides that that is what she's going to do by any means necessary. One day, Belle pulls herself out of her frustration and thinks, how can I get out of this trap of a life? Hacking meat, cleaning floors, and shilling sugar aren't about to make her rich. And going back to Norway as a non-starter, Brynhild is long gone. Then, like a lantern in the night, an idea flashes into Belle's mind. She has a hefty insurance policy on the candy store. It's worth way more than the store's non-existent profits. And accidents happen all the time. So... Belle stares at the kerosene lamp in her hands, the light reflecting in her eyes. Why did she come to this country? Was it to build wealth by creating something like a business? Then why is she suddenly so intent on destroying it? She debates, but in the end, she knows what needs to be done. The candy shop comes to life in a blaze and burns to the ground. Miraculously... 
Belle escapes. When questioned by the insurance company, Belle insists she's lucky to be alive. You know how fickle those kerosene lamps can be, right? It's the late 1800s at this point. Kerosene lamps aren't exactly famous for safety features. And insurance itself is still a relatively new idea. So the insurer relents and gives Belle a payout. A nice one, too. Just like that, Belle's fortunes are looking better than ever. All it took was a little creativity and a few well-placed lies. And she suddenly made herself the type of money that decades of hard labor couldn't even touch. But as Belle counts her dollars, the pleasure of cash isn't the only thing on her mind. She's thinking about something else. Fraud feels good. Coming up with a lie is stimulating. And taking money from an institution that normally takes money from her feels like divine retribution. No, fraud isn't quite the type of lucrative adventure Belle imagined when she came to America. It's even better. None of the work, all of the money, she doesn't see a problem. Belle doesn't waste a minute enjoying the spoils of her scheming. She and her husband Mads, who was completely clueless to her skullduggery, uses the payout to buy a new house in a Chicago suburb. Finally, an auspicious, fresh start for the young family. Only, no name change this time. Now, this could be the end of the story. And if it was then Belle's insurance fraud would either go to the grave with her or become like this funny story that her great-great-grandchildren would someday tell on TikTok. Hashtag my kooky granny Belle. But this show isn't about happy conclusions. The truth is that this first bit of crime awakens something dark inside Belle. And now, as her visions of a grand, lavish future seem closer than ever before, she's feeling more than happy to let that darkness take over. After burning down the candy shop, Belle can't get insurance fraud out of her mind. It was so much easier than everything else she'd tried to make ends meet. Why should she stop here? Remember, she came to America for a dream. Not for a mediocre house in the suburbs. Not for noisy children or a husband without a penny to his name. Belle wants more, and she knows how to get it. Suddenly, everything becomes kindled for the inferno growing inside. Maybe she scrubs dishes one night deep in thought. What else can she ensure besides a business? Her four children scream in the room behind her, and she turns to make them stop, then stops herself. She stares at their faces, looking back at her, and knows exactly what she's going to ensure. Them. Yes, they are her children. Sure, they're innocent. But Belle wants money, and she's fresh out of candy shops. It's late when Belle sits in her kitchen, staring at a baby bottle filled with milk. Next to it sits a small circular case of white powder. She dips her spoon into the fine crystalline substance and hesitates. Is it worth it? Is she really about to murder her baby for a cash payout? Her face turns white, as white as the murderous powder she's stirring. What kind of monster has she become? She looks down at the milk. A gleam on the surface transfixes her. Suddenly, she's transported to a different time, a different place. There's milk, all right, but it's in tin pails surrounding her. Ten pails, to be exact. A young teenage Brynhild is back in Norway, in the freezing cold of a Scandinavian barnyard. Her hands are nearly frostbitten by a cruel midwinter chill. The stink of cow manure invades her nostrils as she milks her cows harder and harder a dark cloud of miserable agrarian poverty slowly encroaching 
suffocating her. She can't breathe. Young Brynhild screams, overwhelmed by her misery, humiliation, her shame. And then the memory fades, and it's Belle glaring at the bottle of milk on her kitchen table. Her face hardens. She's never going back to the poorhouse, ever. And to make sure of it, she takes a scoop of the white powder and mixes it into the baby bottle. News of the tragedy floods the community. It's Belle's infant children, both of them now, dead. Cause of death? Acute colitis. In each of the two cases, which fall only a couple years apart, the illness comes on suddenly and exhibits symptoms that are eerily similar to strychnine poisoning. One death is a tragedy. Two deaths start to raise questions. To add further suspicion, Belle's neighbors whisper that they've never seen her pregnant. Some suspect that the children were never even hers to begin with. But the whispers aren't soft enough. Belle overhears, and she feels eyes and raised eyebrows turning in her direction as the cash flows in. She's not about to let rumors ruin a good thing, so she takes action. Belle's new house burns down soon after the death of her second child. Without missing a beat, Belle plays the role of grieving mother, beset by unending misfortune. Two dead children, a home reduced to cinders. Just as she hoped, her deep misery lifts her above suspicion, and the rumors stop. With a tear, a hidden smile, and three fresh insurance payouts, Belle purchases yet another house with her husband and their two remaining children. In just a few short years, Belle has escalated from opportunistic fraud to cold-blooded murder, infanticide at that. You might stop to think that there has to be something more than greed behind her actions, something like a deep-seated pain or some horrific dementedness. And that could be true, but it's worth noting that Belle's actions are common among a class of serial killers who murder purely for material gain. They're called comfort killers, and there are more of them than you might think. Like some of the other known comfort killers, Belle begins with simple fraud as her gateway drug and escalates when it isn't enough. It's not surprising that she also seems to prefer poison over riskier methods. And just like other comfort killers, she has a pathological need for more, more money, more freedom from the people around her. For Belle, the thrill isn't the kill itself, but in all the cash and deception that follow. So she's not about to stop at two lucrative murders and two bankable fires. No, not by a long shot. The dopamine in her brain has been released, and she needs more. Not long after Belle and Mads move into their new home, he falls violently ill. He convulses and writhes in pain until finally he collapses to his death. Is this yet a third suspicious death, the moment when Belle's homicidal tendencies come to light? Not quite. Yes, Mad's symptoms are similar to strychnine poisoning. And yes, that is suspicious, since two of Belle's children also died after symptoms that were similar to strychnine poisoning. And it's really suspect that Mads dies on the exact day that his two life insurance policies overlap. But Belle has two things working in her favor, besides the double insurance payout from a dead husband. First, Mads has an enlarged heart. His early death isn't a total shock to his doctor. Second, we're in the early 1900s at this point. Misogyny isn't just rampant, it's the norm. The doctor, the police, and everyone else probably think that women aren't capable of organizing 
executing and getting away with multiple instances of murder and fraud. That the intricacies of homicide, conspiracy, and duplicity can only be conducted by big-brained men like Jack the Ripper. They're all completely wrong, of course. And their bigotry will ultimately cost several more lives. But even though the doctor and the police ignore Belle, her neighbors start asking questions yet again. How do so many tragedies keep befalling her loved ones? And how is it that she and her family seem extra comfortable, even though they don't have lucrative jobs? Belle sees the writing on the wall. This time, staying in the Chicago area feels much too risky. There are simply too many mouths that have whispered her name at some point or another. So she sells her house and bundles together her insurance checks, all of which total about $350,000 in today's money. It's not quite a fortune, but it's a huge sum to take without a bit of work. And then she looks for a place where the prying eyes of suburban neighbors won't be a concern. You know, a place where she can destroy lives in peace. She buys a farmhouse in Southern Indiana. Here she moves in with her two remaining children, plus a new foster child she takes on, probably as a morbid investment. Within a year, she marries a local man named Peter Gunness and adopts his infant daughter. This is yet another chance for Belle to start over and live a regular life, albeit with a lot of dark secrets. In general, she has most of what she wants, a nice big house with some land, plenty of cash in the bank, a new location where nobody knows her background. But here's the thing, Belle's starting to feel cocky. She's racked up quite the impressive, ghoulish resume, having gotten away with two arsons and three murders for a total of five cases of insurance fraud. The last case coughed up an especially huge payout too. She's just starting to get good. And the privacy of the farm makes it the perfect place for people to fall mysteriously ill. So yes, this is another chance to start over. But why on earth would Belle start over when she can just keep on winning? Her new husband's infant daughter is the first victim. The cause of the baby's death is unknown, but I think we can safely assume that Belle is behind it. She doesn't even wait a full year into the marriage before she attacks the child. Belle's new husband meets the same fate as his daughter, but his death is different. According to Belle, Peter was rooting around in the kitchen when suddenly a meat grinder fell from above, striking him in the head and killing him instantly. Belle has her script down cold at this point. She knows that prying eyes will look her way, so she's careful to give them something to see. She wails openly about her lost husband and stepdaughter, and the townsfolk's hearts break for her. But there's a hiccup. While at school one day, one of Belle's surviving daughters tells her classmates that she saw Belle hit her stepfather in the head with said meat grinder. Teachers are shocked by the girl's story, but they don't know what to believe. After all, kids say a lot of things. When Belle catches wind of her daughter's schoolyard revelation, she immediately goes into spin mode. A master of deception, she knows that denying a story only makes it stick around longer. Yes, distraction is a much better option. So Belle makes the news she wants to spread. She's pregnant, she tells people. With her late husband's child, it's a piece of her late husband, whom she loved so dearly, growing within her. What a blessing to remain connected to him and a curse to raise a child without him. You know, because she loved him. Don't forget that part. The morbid poetry wins everyone over. Yet again, hearts and minds shift in Belle's favor. 
and everyone dismisses her daughter's recollection as just childish folly. Even better, Belle pockets a $3,000 insurance check this time, over $80,000 in today's money. But this latest success comes with a new problem. Belle's running low on family members, and a dead daughter would be hard to explain away, given recent events. So where is Belle supposed to get that next check? Working doesn't pay nearly enough, and the town of Laporte, Indiana, is a little light on affluent bachelors for Belle to marry and then murder. It seems that after years of success, Belle finds herself facing a basic supply problem. She needs people to kill so that she can cash in, but her usual approach of offing family members just won't work anymore. What's an enterprising serial killer to do? The same thing a lot of people, countries, and companies do when they face a supply problem. Import. Like some sort of dark rom-com character, Belle starts placing singles ads in Chicago newspapers. She markets herself as a wealthy widow looking for a similarly blessed gentleman with whom she can merge fortunes. And surprisingly, it works. Suitors come from far and wide. Sure, the mix of callers must include some swindlers hoping to finesse a rich widow. But based on reports from victims' families, a surprising number of sincerely well-off, eligible bachelors respond to the ad. Like some bizarre March of the Penguins, only without Morgan Freeman around to narrate, one by one, men from all over the country flock to Bell's farm, looking for their moneyed match. And one by one, they meet a violent, messy death. Because Bell's days of strychnine are over. Remember the meat grinder? Yeah. Instead, Bell starts dragging her dates over dinner. Then, when they're relaxed, she takes whatever heavy instrument she can find to their heads. The exact reason for this escalation, from poison to bludgeoning, is unclear. One possible reason is sheer convenience. At this point, Belle's Indiana home is a revolving door of death. Maybe it's that she just doesn't have enough strychnine to fatally dose a stream of adult men. Or maybe Belle is a different kind of killer now. Maybe she's evolved beyond a mere comfort killer who snuffs her victims out for financial gain. Maybe she's come to enjoy the thrill of luring a victim, wooing him with a fine meal, watching his eyes grow sleepy, and then hearing the music of a blunt object against a man's skull. That would explain why Bell racks up so many victims. As many as 42, according to a handyman who spends time around the house. Even conservative estimates say that Bell kills another 11 or so men at her death farm between the years of 1906 and 1908. For two straight years, Bell averages a fresh murder every two months, at the very least. Imagine the body count if she'd had Tinder. In truth, the only reason Belle doesn't have more victims is because of her careful approach to pulling in her targets. Belle's strategy starts with weeks or even months of corresponding with her victims through the mail. Then, once they're sufficiently enthralled, she invites them to visit so they can start their lives together. Of course, the new life requires that the gentlemen liquidate their assets and bring large sums of cash along with them. Then, when they arrive, it's dinner time. Like a relatively more evil Henry Ford, Bell employs a sort of assembly line approach to murder and profit that can only rival that eventually used to assemble the Model T. If it was Bell's goal to become rich the American way, in a warped way, she's kind of succeeding. Of course, Bell's approach to murder isn't the only thing that changes in 1906. Since the fraud days are over, Bell has to diversify her theft beyond mere cash. 
She begins taking victims' fur coats, their watches, and whatever gifts they bring in an effort to impress her. Indiana towns are pretty quiet, so some residents do notice the stream of new visitors coming around and then disappearing. But Belle just shrugs and says they all leave in the night. Don't worry about it. And so at this point, Belle seems to have it made. Boatloads of cash, a steady flow of fresh victims to add to her money pile, and the handful of eyes looking her way belong to incredibly gullible neighbors. Perfect as all this sounds, there's at least one major problem with murdering dozens of suitors. They have families, and you can't kill all of them. A year or so into her bachelorette phase, Belle starts to receive letters from family members in search of their loved ones. Where's our dear John? Please send word of George. Belle fends off the worried relatives left and right, scribbling whatever lies she can think of. She tells one man's family that he ran off with horse traders. She swears never to have ever seen another man, who she had, in fact, already met and killed. The lies work for a while. Some families even stop writing. But then, Belle receives a letter from a Norwegian immigrant by the name of Aslo Helgelein. Aslo, it seemed, is looking for his brother, Andrew. Belle laments that Andrew has already returned to Norway to visit family. She writes that she, too, would love to see him when he returns. But Aslo's not satisfied. He's seen the 80-plus letters his brother and Belle exchanged, so he's well aware that Andrew liquidated all of his assets and was prepared to give Belle thousands of dollars in cash. Aslo doesn't know precisely what's up with his brother and Belle, but he knows something is off. He tells Belle that he does not believe a word she's saying. But then he goes a step further. Aslo informs Belle that he's coming to Indiana to check for Andrew himself. Belle's blood runs cold as she scans the letter. There's no telling what that brother will do when he gets to Indiana, and she knows it can't be good, not for her. She tries to play it cool. She even mails a reply, claiming that she'll help with the search, so long as he covers her expenses. But cool facade notwithstanding, Belle knows the truth. If her cover isn't already blown, it's definitely about to be. And she's not about to sit around and wait to be tried for murder. Consequences are for other people, not winners like Belle Gunnis. So instead, Belle does what she's been doing for a while now. She lies and kills. First, she goes to an attorney to draw up a will. She carefully plants the seeds for her eventual death, right then and there, complaining that her former handyman, a man named Ray Lamphere, has it out for her and her family. See, Belle is a modern woman who can have it all. So amidst all the murder and deception, she's also made time for a torrid affair with Ray. But alas, her stream of out-of-town lovers pushed the couple to end things on bitter terms. So for Belle, casting suspicion on Ray has the dual benefit of putting a tidy bow on her death and getting back at her ex. Belle is vicious and brutal, but you gotta admit, she knows an opportunity when she sees one. The day after Belle draws up her will, her house goes up in flames, which takes us back to our intro. Early inspection of the aftermath reveals the bodies of only three children and an adult woman at this point. The town reels from the loss. A local newspaper reports that Belle died, quote, in a desperate attempt to save her children. Initially, the police arrest Ray Lamphere for arson and murder. 
everyone is prepared to shake their heads and move past this tragic bit of gossip. That is, until Aslaw Helgeline, the brother of one of Bell's, let's call them love interests, comes to town. Aslaw goes straight to the police station and tells them that his missing brother was lured to Indiana by Bell, along with his missing money. He insists that the police check Bell's property again. The sheriff's office, of course, isn't excited about the request, but the accused arsonist, Ray Lamphere, has been loudly claiming that Bell once asked him to burn her barn down with her children in it. Together, Bell's starting to look a lot less like an unfortunate widow. So the police return to Bell's farmhouse and investigate further. The investigators eventually find sloped depressions in the yard, almost as if someone had been digging. Curious, the police break out the shovels. Aslaw waits with bated breath. He's hoping that his brother won't be where he thinks he is, but on some level, Aslaw understands exactly what the police are about to find. But even he, the only person who sensed that Bell was up to something and acted on it, is shocked by what the digging reveals. Five burlap sacks. Nervous, the police open the nearest one. Body parts. Another one. More body parts. All five bags hold the same horrific contents. Looking at it, you know what happened, and yet you don't. And the questions, they're as numerous as the pieces that you see. And then, there it is, an identifier. It's Aslaw's brother, Andrew. He's here, under the dirt. And from the looks of him, he's been here for quite some time. Word of the grisly discovery tears through town. Suddenly, everyone swears they always knew something was off about that bell. Stories of strange men and coincidences spread like ants across a fresh kill. As townsfolk gossip, the police return to the site the following day and uncover at least another six bodies. At least, because it's impossible to know whether you're looking at one body or two and identifying them is largely out of the question. But the police still try. Questions have already begun to pour in, and they're desperate to have answers. They do manage to discover that one of the bodies belonged to Bell's foster daughter, who Bell claimed was away at finishing school. What else had Bell lied about? The time comes for the coroner to look at the body that is allegedly Bell's. It's five inches too short, and at least 50 pounds lighter than Bell who's known to be burly and capable of lifting the large trunks of gifts her suitors sent. It's an alarming and dangerous finding. The last thing the police need is a rumor that this murderous fraudster is still on the loose. They already look incompetent as it is. Dozens of murders happened on their watch, and they ignored years of suspicious activity from Bell. They have to save face somehow. So, the police insist that Bell is indeed the victim of the fire. And yet... The story of her alleged escape spreads all the same. In fact, the story becomes so popular that the jury acquits Ray Lamphere of her murder, though they still charged him with arson. And the jury isn't alone in doubting Bell's death. In the decades that followed the fire, reports of Bell sightings pop up all over Indiana and Chicago. Police even investigate several times, only to find nothing. No one really knows what happens to Bell. All the available evidence suggests that she faked her own death, but... Then what? What does she do after she escapes? 
she can't just start over in another town. The salacious story of the Black Widow, as she was dubbed, is already flashing across national newspapers. Even if she finds a small town where no one reads the paper, how long will it be before someone figures it out? Belle is a tall Norwegian woman with broad shoulders. She's bound to get noticed. Of course, she can go back to Norway, but there's nothing there for her anymore. And how would she make a living? Norway is smaller and more tight-knit than the U.S. It's not a good place for people to go missing. So yes, Belle probably does get away with her crimes. But in all likelihood, she then spends the rest of her life in misery, constantly looking over her shoulder as the newspapers flash her picture across the country. And recognizability isn't her only problem. Belle's never been one for saving money, so she's broke. Between her recognizability and lack of income, Belle probably spends her final days languishing on the streets, or perhaps in a woodland somewhere, trying to figure out her next steps. Whatever the case may be, it seems likely that Belle ultimately experiences a miserable death and the anxiety of seeing it coming. And so we return to our earlier question, why? Belle made quite the dark metamorphosis, from hardworking dreamer to disappointed immigrant, to fraudster, to murderer. And even once Belle became a murderer, she escalated from this sneaky slip of poison to the visceral physicality of assault. Why did all these changes happen? As is often the case, the answer starts with a simple emotion, greed. Belle came to America because she felt the same urge for material comfort that most of us feel. And when she couldn't satisfy that urge, she escalated to fraud. Obviously, that's criminal. But it's not exactly a unique decision. Just ask any insurance claims analyst. So here's where Belle's greed tips the scale and she becomes sinister. After the insurance claim, Belle stops seeing the people around her as loved ones, people who could share in the benefits of what she was doing. Instead, she came to view them as a means to an end, as ways to get even more money, even closer to the life promised by the American dream. You could say that she saw her murders as making that dream happen. In her mind, the people she killed weren't radically different from the old houses we might raise to build new condos. The American dream is a complicated concept. It's a sort of tacit promise that if you keep your head down and work hard in the new land of opportunity, your fortune will come to you as it has for countless others. When that promise never materialized for Belle, she didn't see it as a misfortune. She saw it as a betrayal. If she couldn't get rich by creating, she made sure to get rich by destroying. Belle took something as insidious as serial murder and Americanized it into a for-profit capitalistic enterprise. As wonderful as this country is, the concept of suffering and death in the name of profit isn't exactly confined to Belle Gunness. Think of slavery, chemical companies, the business of cigarettes are spread into the West at all. Unfortunately, the underside of American capitalism isn't necessarily pretty. And the story of Belle Gunness is a prime example of that. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Clarence Moore. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. <laughs>